0: There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better
1: way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd.
2: You don't have to live away. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view. The changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 568 is September 10th, 2010. It is a Friday. That means it is your day. It is listener calls day. This is where you dial in and call. Not right now. Well, you can right now, but you know, you'll be on the air two weeks from now. Because these are pre-recorded calls. You call 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. That's 866 866- 65, thank you. Leave your question. Uh, you do it within two minutes or less or you get cut off. You be concise, direct to the point, and then I try to answer it for you on a Friday show like this. We call them Listener Call in Friday. So if you're first one, welcome to Listener Call in Friday. Um, we have a bunch of great stuff today. Before we get to that, though, I want to knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Common Sense Prep. Hey, what more can you ask for a company? You know, we have a lot of them to do this. Gee, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna make my name of my company say what my company does. Common Sense Prep does that. All the common sense items that you need for your prepping, right there, ready to go, and uh, no, nothing real extreme or tinfoil hat in any way. The stuff that we all should have as part of our preps. One thing I really think you should check out on their site are their selection of Paladin Press books and DVDs. Uh, You can just look at the titles of some of those alone and go, yeah, that should be part of my prepping library. So check those out. Remember, if you are in the member support brigade, you get 15% off all of the, uh, not everything on their site, but the Paladin Paladin Press books and DVDs. Um, So make sure you're using your, there's a special discount link uh, for for the Paladin Press books on uh, Common Sense Prep in your members area, so don't forget to use it if you're going to buy any other books. Next up today, Western Botanicals. You know, I'm, I'm really happy we have Western Botanicals as a sponsor, because I always, you know, right from the beginning, I, I, I've done some shows on it, I probably need to do some more shows on it, but herbology and alternative healing are big things with me. I, I deeply believe in them. I also believe that the marketplace is full of a bunch of bullcrap. I really do, and I think most of the companies out there selling some miracle cure in a bottle are so full of crap, it's unbelievable. Uh, I've I've heard it, I've seen it, and it, it just bugs me. When I was approached by Western Botanicals, I took a look at what they were doing, and I realized all they were doing was providing the traditional things that have been used by mankind for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and giving you the information you needed so you could apply it in your own life. And whether you wanted a preparation that was already put together using specific ingredients, uh, they had pre, you know, kind of pre-made stuff like that, or you wanted your own whole individual herbs for things you couldn't grow or collect where you were, they had that, and that they would give you advice and help from a practical, realistic viewpoint. And they were run by a guy, Dr. Kyle Christensen, would say something to you like, dude, if you have cancer, go to an oncologist. Don't drink colloidal silver and think it's going to fix your problem. Um and, and that gave them immediate legitimacy with me and I've had Kyle on the show a couple times. He's always been a great interview. Uh I really think if you're looking for anything from that view from that world, Western Botanicals is the safe, reliable, and trustworthy place to check out. So check out Western Botanicals. Next up today, remember connect with us on Facebook and Twitter if you have Facebook or Twitter accounts. I put a lot of extra information out into Facebook and Twitter. Tons of it. Uh, Little things I just can't get into the show about all kinds of stuff, so you might want to connect with us there. Remember also, this month we are uh, a finalist for the Podcast of the Year Awards. That's at podcastawards.com. There's like 12 categories. We're in the general category. You can vote once a day between now and December 15th. I'd really like a shot at winning that. We're up against some big shows, but hey, if we can win something like that, it gives us a lot of mainstream, uh, recognition. I think it would be great to add. So give me, a, you know, give me your vote if you can. Vote, do what they say in Chicago. Vote early and often. Um, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts from like 20 different vendors. You get over $100 worth of free ebooks. It's $50 a year or 5 bucks a month. That breaks down to $0.10 cents an episode to support the show. And with that, let's go ahead and get into your calls. Before we do, I want to say something to some of you guys that it may be like, where's my call? Why is my call not on the air? There's only a few reasons that I don't put calls on the air. One, the caller says, don't put my call on the air and expects me to like call you by your cell phone or something, and I generally don't do that. Okay, I don't track you down that way. The call-in line is four calls on the air, but also don't put your call on the air if you tell me not to. Another one is that you ask a question that can't be answered. How do I illegally acquire weapons? Can't answer that for you on the air. Can't do that, not going to do that, don't provide illegal advice. But here's the other two, and these are the two most likely reasons. One is because you call from a cell phone in a car, uh and this is how your call sounds okay I can't answer that Right. the other one is that you're somewhere out in the middle of nowhere when you make your call or you have a bad cell phone connection and your call sounds like this hi Jack this is Tom and I was wondering if you could help me with keeping bees and we have about an acre no okay can't do it Uh, And then the last one is, I usually am able to do these, but you can help me by not letting it happen, The Fade Talker. Hi, Jack, this is Tom in Nebraska, and I was wondering if you could tell me... A little bit about keeping peace. And And we really would like your input on this because it's something the wife and I have been looking to. So I don't know if you're talking too quiet. I don't know if that's a cell phone connection thing. But what I am saying is that sometimes there's technical difficulties. If you called in more than three weeks ago, you thought you had a good question, something I would take. It hadn't been on the air yet. You may want to recall, make sure you're on a good connection, and speak loud directly and to the point and see if we can get your call online. Just a little bit of tech support from Jack there for your calls. Because I try to take and put just about every call I get on the air. Not everyone, but just about everyone. With that, let's go ahead and take that first call today. And i uh, got about 11 of them lined up. Some really good stuff today.
1: Uh, hi, Jack. This is Nathan and Trent. We're calling from the San Joaquin Valley, uh, home of the water shortages, uh, where they don't like farmers and they don't like domestic food uh we were chatting and uh, about what kind of movies we thought you liked that dealt with uh survival situations whether uh it is because of an apocalypse or some sort of situation where survival is necessary and we wanted to know uh what some of your favorites are uh thank you and uh keep up the great work bye
2: well, there's a lot of them, uh, and there's also a lot that I should have seen by now that I haven't, especially newer movies. I just haven't been spending a lot of time watching movies. I've been working on my yard, working on my bug out location, and working on the show and writing books. Um, so I haven't watched a lot of the newer movies. I mean, even ones that have been out for a long time and are in DVD now, like, uh, haven't seen 2012 yet. I know everybody just went, <gasps> you know, <laughs> but, uh, I really want to see that. I keep telling my son to get it on Netflix. He keeps telling me it's not that good a movie. I already saw it. I'm like, Get it so I can watch it. Come on, man! I'm still let you live in my house for another month. Um, and uh, but like some of the stuff that I that I have, you know, really gotten at least some some thought out of. Uh, probably the best one because it dealt with the long term needs was Castaway, which I didn't think was the greatest movie in the world, but from a from a, a, pre- a preparedness survivalist standpoint, it really showed kind of what it would be like in probably not the most realistic way. I mean, you're not going to knock a tooth out of your mouth with a skate blade and a rock. You might try out of desperation, but it probably isn't going to work. Um And there's some other things in there that, you know, didn't pass the real test, but the, the, the psychological, the, the needs, everything like that. And then the readaptation, once you actually got back to civilization, that was pretty interesting. Um, Black Hawk Down was probably one of the most underrated movies about survival you could have ever seen i don't think I think most people just looked at it as a war movie and didn 't realize that that type of chaos was what could result in a major city during you know something that wasn't the same thing it's not just you know the u s and going over there and trying to deal with the the you know, all, all the things that were part of Somalia at the time but um you know just that one utter chaos breaks out and it's everybody for themselves that's the kind of yeah you know, it would be it wouldn't be exactly the same if we had that type of a civil unrest complete breakdown here it would obviously be different but there's so many things that you know trying to save a guy you just can't save and being scared and being shot at and being pinned down and even being better trained and better armed but being outnumbered there's there was probably a lot to that, that we could learn. Um, some of the, like, kind of just, you know, brand new move, brand new B version movies. I mean, that were actually ended up being A list movies that kind of made you think of old B movies. I Am Legend, uh, with Will Smith was pretty good. Um, here's what I don't see Waterworld was good. I mean, I'm just thinking here. But what I, uh, probably the day after was this old made for TV movie. Uh, from the 80s about global thermal nuclear war with the Russians. Um, and there's just, it could go on and make a list. But, what I don't see a lot of movies do, and what I would love to see are maybe some of these movies taken to like part two. And part two being, the disaster's over, the aftermath. I just found a, like a B movie on, uh, sci-fi called, uh, Post Impact. And I thought that, that sounds great. It was, you know, this big comet hit the earth and blew everything up and made the northern hemisphere into basically an ice age. And it, it, it was, but then it all centered around this mission. I didn't even watch the whole thing to go find some guy that had a death ray or something like that. I'd like to see one of these movies get real and, t- you know, Castaway doesn't fit this, but some of these, you know, impact, war movies, things like that go into, okay, the war's ended, the impact's over, the, the sunburst is done, and we've had the EMP, and be more like some of our our, our, um, our apocalyptic fiction, and deal more with the aftermath. And I haven't seen a lot of movies that do that. I know The Road is the one I've been asked to watch a hundred times and haven't had time, and I, I think there's some of that there. Um, the TV series Jericho sort of did that, but... They were too worried about pop culture and trying to be cool in teenage years and stuff like that to to really get into the, the meat of the thing fast enough, I think, to keep it on the air. But I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a fun subject. That's why I took it, and there's some of the things I think about it. But that's what I would, you know, If I think if Hollywood's out of ideas, and sometimes I think they are, well, then go take a movie, you know, like Deep Impact, right? I think it was Deep Impact with Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis, where they, uh, where they blew up the the asteroid. That was the one where they stopped all the major asteroids. What was the other one? No, Bruce Willis was armed again. Deep impacts the one, I think. Morgan Freeman was the president. And this huge asteroid did hit and wiped out Washington and the whole East Coast and all. And then they blew up the second part of the comet and kept it from hitting the Earth. But there was massive damage done by the first one. Do a sequel to that movie, and you've got my interest. What does the United States look like with Washington, D.C. gone? Don't everybody get happy because all the senators and congressmen went to a, a bunker, and they were all saved. So the government would still be intact in the sequel if it was done based on the first movie, but the entire northeastern United States is gone. New York City, Boston, Rhode Island. I'm not wishing for this stuff, folks. I'm wishing for the sequel of the movie. What does it do to the infrastructure of the United States? It's not like everything. You know, The end of that movie is very optimistic. And there's some optimism there, but it's not like all of a sudden things are going to be great. What's the economy look like? What is, you know, the entire island of Manhattan is underwater and gone. there would be some interesting sequels that they could make on some of these movies. What's the, you know, when they end the movie, like, okay, here's another one, uh, Independence Day. Remember Independence Day? We beat the aliens. They blew up every major city on the planet first. And we shot down their big ships. Are any of them alive? What kind of movie could we make if an Independence Day 2? One year later, the survivors are rebuilding. There's an alien, uh, you know, alien uh, remains stuck on Earth. Eh, who knows? Not very realistic, but you could put a lot of realism in there. What does the world look like with the major cities destroyed and the infrastructure gone? Let's go ahead and take another question.
1: Hey, Jack, this is Archbison in Midland, Texas. I was wondering if you have ever used the Latter-day Saints Church, the Mormon Church, as a resource for survivalism or prepping or referred anyone to that. I myself am not a Mormon, or nor do I subscribe to their doctrines, but it is in their religion to be prepared and to be survivalists. And they will teach you how to use their tannery and seal things in mylar bags and such without pushing their religion on you. Uh, thanks, Jack. Big listener, your show. Love the heck out of it. Uh, Your thoughts on that. Thank you.
2: You know, actually, I haven't been to any of those facilities and kind of shame on me. There's one right up here in the Carrollton Farmers Branch area. I should talk to somebody up there before we move, get up there with a camera and actually kind of document what they do, put that out on YouTube for you guys. But it is a great resource. I know that they won't just help you do some things like using their facilities. They'll actually make things available to people uh, to come in and can their own foods, as far as I know anyway. Uh, But another thing that they'll do, they they do a lot of prepping in in their faith, as the caller said, and so they'll buy a giant bag of something, and then they'll dry can it into number 10 cans. They have dry canning equipment, high-end equipment and stuff to do this with that the church has funded. You can go to a lot of these places, and they'll sell you packaged stuff for a big, you know, big discount of what you'd ever buy it for in the market, because they make a few bucks off it to help fund their operation, do a little bit of fundraising, and uh, they definitely don't push their faith on you. I mean, that's something I've noticed with uh, Latter Day Saints church members anywhere I've ever gone. Some of the most uh, considerate people and the most accepting of, of other things. I know one time I had to go to a business meeting uh, in Ground Zero for LDS, which is uh, Salt Lake City, and uh, you know I'm in this big. Group in this big building and, and and all these people and I would say eighty percent of the people at the meeting were from the Salt Lake City area and were LDS members so only twenty percent of us were from from other places and um, they apparently in in the LDS you guys don't drink coffee uh, but because they knew that see, people were coming in that were of other faiths that didn't see coffee as anything. And I don't know why they don't drink coffee. I'm not going to even speculate on it. But my point was they went out and bought a coffee maker and some coffee and all the stuff to go with the coffee to accommodate other people, which I thought was really cool. And that kind of receptive nature is what I've always gotten from anybody of the LDS faith. I'm not interested in converting or anything. I'm not going to do that. I have no no desire to do that. Um, but I have a tremendous respect for what they do uh both in spreading the message of preparedness and prepping and the way that they act in their faith. I, I, I uh there's a lot of you out there that probably have different beliefs than I do. Uh but what I've always looked to with the individual is how do you practice what you believe. And uh my general impression with, with, with uh the LDS church is, uh, they practice it by doing the things that they profess to believe, like sharing knowledge and sharing things with other people. So, definitely take advantage of that resource. If you go to dehydrate to store.com, I'll put a link in today's show notes on the resources page. Tammy has a way where you can find if there's an LDS cannery near you. Um, and as far as Tammy, is Tammy part of the LDS? I have no idea. Um, Dehydrate to Store on, on YouTube. I have no idea if she's LDS or just has an affinity with them uh, because she shares shares the preparedness mindset. That alone tells you something. Let's go ahead and take the next call.
3: Hey, Jack, this is John in West Virginia. Uh, I have a question concerning tobacco. I am a smoker. I know I shouldn't smoke, but far be that for me to discuss. I want to know about storing Cigarettes and or tobacco, should I freeze dry them, should I freeze it, should I vacuum seal it, just need you to know what I'll do. I don't want to quit smoking during the Tegawakee area. Alright, thanks a lot, man.
2: This is one of those I am not an expert subjects because I don't store tobacco, because I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't store cigarette tobacco is probably a better way to phrase that. Here's a dark secret about Jack, about once every month or two months and probably been 3 months and probably time for a deck trip to do this. Jack Spierko fires up a great big good quality cigar from a place like the Dominican Republic or Honduras or something like that. Drinks a couple beers, listens to some music and enjoys his backyard. Uh it's a very uh very much a a a part-time thing for me though. Cigars we keep in something called a humidor, and I don't know how much, if at all, this helps a cigarette smoker, because I think cigar tobacco uh, is actually kept more moist than cigarette tobacco, which is highly dry and burns very very high temperatures, and is part of, not all of, but part of the bad part of smoking. I mean, the hotter the tobacco burns, the more uh, toxins are produced, and that's why cigars actually produce less toxin, um, and, uh, cigar smokers seem to, uh, be more likely to be the, I smoke once a month kind of guy, uh, and don't get as addicted. Um, we can debate that if you want to, but that's just my experience. But into humidor, we want to keep, uh, the temperature somewhere in the 70s, and we want to keep the humidity level in our humidor around 70 to 78 percent, somewhere in that range. Uh, and that's what keeps the cigars from drying out. And, and you can take cigars, in a humidor and you can store them for 20 years in fact there's people that are kind of like that's their thing they smoke old cigars really old cigars and they aging and and they'll, and they'll they'll live indefinitely in there basically as long as they're kept in that environment i don't think that helps the cigarette smoker cuz i think the tobacco condition is an entire, entirely different state I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't smoke cigarettes because you already said you know that, but I'm going to say it anyway, you shouldn't smoke cigarettes. But if you're going to be a tobacco user, then I'd say that probably the best thing you can do, especially in a place like West Virginia, which is probably one of the greatest places in the world to grow tobacco, start learning to grow some of your own. Uh, Because what you have is a renewable resource that anybody can grow by putting some seeds in the ground and providing it what it needs. And, uh, you know, maybe look at if you're going to be a smoker, doing a little bit more things like pipe smoking and other things like that, again, that allow you to store the, the tobacco in a more humid environment uh, and do so and smoke it at a lower temperature. Uh, but I think a lot of times what happens for cigarette smokers that, that switch to, to pipes or tobacco tend to inhale deeply and any of the things that you can call a saving grace and there's no good to tobacco I'm not saying that but anything that mitigates uh things by going with a to- a pipe or a a cigar gets completely uh done away with cuz most cigar smokers don't inhale. Uh and of course you're going to inhale some but basically it's more of a it's more of a of a of a, of a puffing of a mouth thing. the same thing with a pipe. But the cigarette smoker who's been smoking for 20 years grabs a cigar and like a deep draw and down and they're like, "Oh, this is the greatest cigarette ever." It's a giant cigarette to them. So uh, my friends that used to smoke cigarettes uh, would buy a carton at a time and keep them in the freezer. I don't know if that's the good thing to do or not, but I had a roommate, and he would buy maybe two cartons at a time because he would get a deal, and he would throw them in the freezer. So, folks, I'll tell you what. If you're a smoker and you know how to keep cigarettes long-term, uh, post it in today's show notes. I definitely know you don't want to freeze dry them. That ain't going to work. My guess would be if you took them and put them into a vacuum-sealed pack, Uh, So you put a couple packs in a vacuum seal, vacuum seal that. That should last quite a long time, uh, but I don't know. So I'm going to defer to the audience on this one. Let's take another question.
0: Hey, Jack, this is Brian in Colorado, member of the Member Support Brigade. I was just curious uh, on uh, different rices to store. I know brown rice doesn't store as long as white rice, but uh, how long would basmati rice store? if it stores well at all, and also like minute rice and stuff like that. Uh, Enjoy the show. Have a good
2: one. Let's start with brown rice because I think brown rice gets a bad rap. Vacuum sealed with O2 absorbers, brown rice is going to store easily for two years. And that's going to be the listed upward limit on most you know pages that are resources for storing food. Now remember, anybody that gives you a number that puts self at liability for what you're doing and doesn't want you to sue them because you bought four thousand pounds of brown rice and tried to store it for five years and went rancid in three is going to cover their ass. Um, I have never had brown rice that I've stored for any length of time go bad on me. The reason it will is because there's there's more oils. In the rice, and the oils go rancid. The bran, the, the brown part of the rice that's removed when it's polished, has oils in it. Uh, that's part of why it's more nutritious for us. So, if you would prefer to store brown rice, as long as you're rotating it through every two years, you can store lots of brown rice. Now, for long term storage, you're going to want to look at white rice. White rice. According to, you know, the people that are still covering their, remember, they're hedging their bets and covering their ass here in an oxygen deprived environment, stored in an average temperature range of about 60 to 65 degrees, um, sealed up, protected, has a lifespan of about 25 years. So it's not that, once well, the, well, here's the thing with brown rice. People say, well, does the store as well as white rice? Well, that don't, that, you know, you have to take that into context. Well, how well does white rice store? Well, really well. So, you've got a one to two year shelf life product with brown rice. Minute rice, no pro- Minute rice, I have not found any reduction in the storage life of minute rice. You know, I've, I've pulled minute rice out of a bucket that's been in there for five years, vacuum sealed, O2 absorbers, cooked it up, can't tell the difference. Can't tell one bit of the difference. Uh, and I like minute rice for long term storage because it takes less time to cook. Uh, but again, if you cook rice the way I tell you to, um, rice is the easiest thing in the world to cook, and you never have to have sticky rice again. We just talked about this on the forum. How do you cook rice? Put water in there like you're cooking pasta. Throw your rice in. Boil it. As it starts to get to a point where you think it's about done, get a fork. Take a piece out. Taste it. When it's tender the way that you want it, dump the water out. Throw the rice in a colander. Rinse the starch off of it with cool water. Put it to the side. Reheat it and use as necessary. You start making your rice that way, you'll never do it any other way. You just won't. And I'm telling you right now that people say, well, I can make rice, and that's fine. Uh, You can do it the way that usually works, or you can do it the way that always works. And, I mean, there's certain things, like if you're doing sticky rice for making sushi and stuff like that, you might want to do it a traditional, conventional way. But for day-to-day, some rice to go with some beans on a plate or something like that, brown, white, I don't care. Now, minute rice has its own, you know, method that you use because it's kind of an instant product. But regular white rice out of a bag. Now, uh, as far as white rices... It doesn't matter what kind it is. You're going to get the same kind of storage life out of it. So my belief with your storage is, you know, um, your your best nutritional value is brown. So store brown rice in a short one-and-a-half to two-year rotational period and store white rice in a long-term 10-year rotational to 15-year rotational period. And that way you have a large quantity of nutrition that's very cheap with your rice and your things like dried macaroni product and, and legumes and beans that are put away in those long-term storage buckets. And then your brown rice you use more as a, as a so try to eat more brown than white. That'll get your rotational going quicker. Uh, let's go ahead and take the next question.
3: Hey, Jack, it's uh, Sir Survivor on, on the forums. Um, <clears throat> you kind of went over my head there when you started talking about land in, uh, and <clears throat> investing land into uh, IRA. Uh You know, I don't really know a lot about this stuff. When years ago, my dad bought me this book on "One Up on Wall Street" about investing. uh, But I I tried to move some of my money out of Fidelity um, stock market right before the crash, and they talked me out of it, and I lost a bunch of money. And and I I since have moved a lot of my money into CDs. But uh, maybe there's some better stuff. I mean, I don't know commodities or what else. uh, I don't know if you can have like you know actual you know, buy some gold and put it in a vault somewhere and, and share it and have that as your IRA or what, but
1: uh,
3: <clears throat> I don't know if there's any, you know, good books for the layman. I mean, if I have to spend two hours on the Internet trying to figure this out, I mean, it's it, it, not that I won't do it, but uh, I don't know. So um, <clears throat> I, I, I have a bunch of money and I don't know what to do with it for my IRA and in, in, in whatever, you know, specific companies or something. I mean, I'm in fidelity right now, but um, whatever you have for suggestions, uh, thanks. but.
2: A um, couple things here. Number one, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not going to tell you specific companies to invest in, specific funds to invest in. You can ask all you want. I can't do it. I'm sorry. Even, Sir I like you, man. I can't do it because it's not who I am. And I'm not willing to take the legal liability. that I mentioned a couple companies that you to check them out and you put 100% of your money in there and then you try to sue me one day. And sooner or later, if I'm doing stuff like that, somebody's going to do it. So I can't help you with that. Um, when you're going to move money out of a stock-type investment, What you need to tell a financial advisor is, listen, dummy, shut up and listen. Okay? If there's tax consequences here, I want you to explain them to me. Other than that, so that I'm making a fully informed decision, I am telling you what I need done. Either do it for me, or tell me who to call to do it for myself. And you may get cooperation at that point. They're always going to try to talk you out of, it, especially the consumer level guy. Right, that works on back end and stuff like that. The guy that answered the ad in the Dallas Morning News to work for, you know, American Express or Edward Jones or whatever, they're paid based on your assets and investment. And when you move to something like a money market account, keep your money safe, they don't get any money. Right. And it's it's not just greed that keeps them with this this uh, advice. They're, they get an email every day from the home office that tells them things. They're programmed to be relationship salespeople and keep you invested for the long term and keep you off the ledge, don't let you jump off the ledge, and keep you dreaming of the day that you walk down the beach with your pants rolled up. So at times you got to take charge and say, execute the sale. It's your money, it's your responsibility, and I'm not saying you are, but you can't blame the other guy. I've done it myself. I've left, I've been talked out of it. And I know now that when I feel I need to make an executed trade, it, you know, it, it, to hell with the advisor. I'm calling the I'm calling the main company and just saying, I want to sell these shares. So I don't even want to hear what the guy's got to say, unless I'm concerned about tax consequences. And I might say, okay, if I sell these shares, and it's outside of an IRA or whatever, I, do I have tax consequences here? Can I mitigate them? That's what I want to know from my advisor. Not whether he thinks I should do it or not. Because he's always going to say no. He is always, find me an advisor, find me an advisor that when I told you in 2008, get out of the market, that you went to and said, I want to get out of the market, said, okay, let's do that. One, and if you did it with your clients, you call me. In fact, you email me because I'll actually get your your communication. If you are a financial advisor and you listen to this show, and in in August, September, uh, July, back then, before the big slide, if you took your clients out of the market, or at least you took the ones out that said I want out, I want to know. Because I can't find one that did it. And the ones that say they did I look at it, and what they did is they took out like, they hedged with like 20% out. I want to know somebody that took people all out. And it was the right thing to do. There's no argument to be made about that. On the property IRA, don't let that go over your head. It's very simple. If you want to buy property with an IRA, you can buy the property, but you can't live in it or use it for yourself. And you can't take possession of the property or possession of the income from the property until you reach retirement age and start taking it as a distribution. If you do it with a Roth, you spend the money that you've already paid taxes on. Just like anything else, you take all the money out. At the end, you pay no taxes on it. If you do it with a conventional IRA, you defer the taxes in the IRA, and then when you we re- take the distributions, you pay tax on it. Gold and silver in IRAs. If you're going to do gold and silver in an IRA, I I cannot understand why, honestly. Um, If you're doing a conventional, let's say you put $20,000 in over a few years, that's all tax-free money at that point. So maybe you can buy $20,000 worth of gold with $15,000 worth of contributions in 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 your best-case scenario there. Uh, Or maybe you've had some gains that you've realized inside the IRA. Now you're sitting on a bunch of money. You want to do something with it. You're going to buy gold, silver. Uh, I kind of understand that. But here's the thing about gold and silver that gets lost on me with people using it for IRAs. Other than, again, you've got a bunch of money stranded. You don't want to take it out. That's the only place you feel safe with it for now. You don't want it in cash. You want some portion of metals. I get it. Uh, But the thing about gold and silver is they don't pay dividends. And you don't pay taxes on them because of capital gains until you sell them. So if I buy $20,000 worth of gold and put it in a safe in my floor, and gold becomes worth $50,000 tomorrow, I don't pay a dime of tax until I pull at least one ounce of gold out of that safe and go sell it somewhere. So the big thing with IRAs and and, and 401Ks and things like that is you don't pay taxes on dividends and yields, and, and you can trade the stock, sell it, realize the gain, and buy something else with it, and generally when you're holding gold and silver, you're not selling gold and then buying a stock and then selling the stock and buying gold again. Uh, if you're doing that, then this makes sense. But that's not what most people do. With metals, most people kind of decide, I'm going to do a 5% or 10% metal versus my total net worth. And they just keep adding more metal as their net worth increases. And in that situation, you're not deferring anything. And if you, ha- if you put the metal in there, it's regulated, it's known, it's fully reported. You can go buy gold anonymously, folks. You really can. You still can. You can definitely buy silver anonymously. You can go to a coin show, you can walk up to a booth, and go, I want four silver eagles, drop a hundred, whatever bucks it is now, cash." the guy hands them to you, you're gone. You know, and don't believe the hoopla about the new tax law under the... It's not what you think it is, and you'll still be able to do that. So why would I take that and then put it into an IRA? The other thing with gold and silver in an IRA is you can't hold the metal. You have to have a receiver receive the metals for you, put them into a place and hold them for you as a custodian. Because obviously I could say, well, I put all this gold in my IRA, and if I could keep it in the floor of my house, I might have sold it. Uh, or I might have more than like, I so Since it's regulated, it's got to go somewhere where it can be held. So gold and silver have to be held by somebody else. Real estate, when you own land in your IRA, you have to, again, you can't use the property The IRA receives all the income from the property and pays all the expenses, kind of like a corporation. And you can't take receivership of anything, uh, any of it. You control it, but it exists apart from you. When you reach retirement age, now you can extract and do what you want to with it based on tax consequences, based on conventional or Roth. What to invest in? I'm not going to tell you that. But I am going to tell you, don't be dumb with your money. And if you just feel like, I don't know what to put my money in, I just don't know what to do. I don't know who to trust. I don't know what to do. And my gut doesn't tell me it's safe to be invested. Do not be afraid to hold cash. I'm so uh, amazed at how worried people are to hold a little bit of cash. Cash is king in inflation and deflation, folks. Don't let anybody lie to you. Unless you go to Weimar Republic hyperinflation, and that's not what we're likely to see in the next few years, folks. All those guys that want you to dial gold line and buy gold now, when you dial gold line, you talk to a rep, ask them at the end of this week, how are you going to receive your paycheck, in gold and silver or in U.S. dollars? That's all I'll say on that. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Stefan from Melbourne. Um, I just have a quick comment. I was just listening to your house
4: short-selling show, and I think, I'm not sure if I get the numbers right, but the example was something like a $200,000 house goes down $50,000 in value, and, you know, negotiating with the bank of taking a hit around. Now, when you think about it, since the U.S. is operating on a fractional reserve system, a $50,000 loss in the house, when you sell it personally, you have a $50,000 loss. But for the bank, it's just one-ninth of that. So the bank would only have the loss of $5,555. Just think about that for a second and how uh, interesting it would be for a bank
2: to negotiate a short sale under these conditions. Thanks. See, the problem is that's not the case. Because, technically it is, but it's like saying this. It's like saying, well, John goes to a casino, and John rolls the dice, and John wins um, $50,000. John now goes to uh, live his life, puts his money in the bank from the casino, and buys $50,000 worth of, of stock. The stock now drops to $25,000. John only lost $25,000. It's actually worse than that. And the longer you've held the gain, the more it is a true loss. You've now bet on the gain. You've now made the gain part of your asset portfolio. You've now written the gain into your financial plan. See, when the bank writes the hundred and just call it two hundred thousand dollar mortgage. Now they have an asset that's worth more than two hundred thousand dollars. That's the other side of it. You don't, you know, we get it gets leaved out, in the fractional reserve backwards, back the the, the things that multiply forward also multiply backward. So now this mortgage is a thirty year mortgage on a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage. You're probably going to spend about six hundred and fifty thousand dollars if you keep it for thirty years. Guess what the bank says the mortgage is worth. $630,000. Even if they can only sell it for $200,000 or $300,000 to somebody else who's going to bet on, you know, the retention and things like that and, and the payout when the property sells and, and all the other things that are built into the contract. Well, once it goes on the balance sheet, then what happens is a bunch of them get put together into something called a derivative Or Actually, at first it's just a package of mortgages and that gets sold. And then somebody insures against it. And then when somebody insures against it, um, that insurance policy gets bundled up with a bunch of other insurance policies as derivatives and then that gets called an asset and sold to somebody else. And then it's done again and again, and this process is repeated, where it's not just the mortgage itself that's at risk, but the long-term gain that's been put down as an asset by the bank, the insurance against the gain, the insurance against the insurance, and all of these things packaged up. And then one property fails, and it's not that big a deal. But if hundreds of properties or thousands of properties, or in the case of our recent crash, millions of properties fail, All of these things start to implode upon themselves. And that one $50,000 short sale can cause, instead of one-ninth, nine times. So the $50,000 loss to the individual bank when you run it through the the quadrillion-dollar derivatives bubble might cause $400,000 worth of loss. It can't do it alone, but when we put together all of... The people doing it at the same time and the people that are outright losses because nobody wants the house at all. And it's going to sit there for two years vacant and all of the other things that cause these implosions. And you put them all together, it's like having one soldier, you know, trying to get through a city wall. It can't be done. But if you have a million soldiers, how much damage can each one do after the wall's been breached? That's how these mortgages actually work. So I know it seems complicated with mathematics. In a technical analysis, on a single level, you're actually right. But the whole nature of the system is as soon as that loan's written and it goes down on the banks as an asset, as a receivable, and any type of cash flow is realized off of it, that cash flow goes into another component of reserves and begins the process anew. And again, it's just like, again, yeah, you got the money, easy. But once the money's on the books and being used as a tool, when it's lost, everything it's leveraged against falls in as well. All right, let's go ahead and take another call.
1: Hey, Jack. Thank you for everything you do for your audience. Uh, Very much appreciate it. Uh, This is Madcap1 up in Zone 5, USDA Zone 5. Cruiser M and I have been going back and forth discussing uh, possible options for greenhouses and uh, high hoop houses here uh, in the Illinois, Wisconsin area. Unfortunately, we can't quite figure out uh, our best options for heating those. We know we're considering, both of us at our respective homes, running the dryer vents uh, out through the greenhouse or hoop house, possibly some composting and some um, uh, water barrels to do some heat retention. But we're wondering if you had any ideas for uh, heavier-duty, more commercial heating in there, which we're probably going to need up here. Love to hear some of your feedback on some really cold-growing potentials. Our options. Thank
2: you very much. Bye-bye. Well, actually, a lot of what you've got there is probably enough to do the majority of what people do with greenhouses in the wintertime. Um, generally, you're not growing a lot of tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers in in January anywhere, especially in a cold climate like Illinois uh, or, you know, uh, I remember where else you said, uh, Wisconsin or, or wherever it was you said you were, but up in that region. Um, I guess you could... The big thing that I would look to do if I was going to try to uh, to put more heat than you can do with active compost piles and things like that is to um, look to maybe wood heat because you're going to get a lot of solar gain during the day. So assuming you're on property and you can do this every day, if you had a nice, especially something like a soapstone stove centrally located in your greenhouse – Uh, with a chimney going up through the roof and, you know, kind of metal lined around it so you don't melt your, your tunnel or what have you. And, uh, stoked up a great big fire in that, uh, in that, that, that that stove every night. And left it till morning. Uh, it's gonna continue to radiate heat for hours and hours and hours even after the last ember goes out. And a good sized hardwood fire, uh, built up is going to burn for quite a while. There are some stoves that kind of have wood where you stack it in there. It's almost like it's a hopper, and it's all contained in there, and you close it down. But as one log burns, and it just kind of allows, so you can actually sort of auto-feed a few logs and kick out the duration of the fire. That's probably the easiest, and if you have access to wood without spending a lot of money for it, the most economical thing. Electric heating of something like that is a very inefficient um, thing to heat. Right, it's not insulated. That's the entire point. Um, is gonna have a lot of problems. The another way you could do it is by building it onto your house and allowing the greenhouse to heat the house during the mornings and then the house to transfer some heat out to the greenhouse during the, the, uh, the evenings. But that doesn't sound like what you wanna do. Dryer vent, as long as you plan to dry your clothes at night and you're gonna dry them anyway. That's a pretty good use of an otherwise wasted heat source. Brilliant idea. Never thought of it. I do know that there's a guy somewhere in the Midwest, somewhere in your area, that's doing aquaponics, greenhouse growing, and composting, that's going crazy nutso with how much stuff he's producing. A guy I'd really like to get on the show. I'll see if I can find that video. Uh, It's amazing what he's doing in high tunnels and his only heat source. Is compost. So that can do more than you probably realize that it can. If you have a big enough place to have good solid lines of compost going at all times, you have to keep, you know, bringing new, you know, as as stuff starts to compost out, you got to be kind of staggering it. So there's always something active in there. Uh, Another thing that I've seen done uh, by permaculturists is, is to build a chicken house adjacent to the greenhouse. And believe it or not, chickens apparently will provide quite a bit of, um, uh, body heat to your greenhouse more than you would realize so basically the chickens are in the greenhouse but can't get to the other stuff in the greenhouse so they have their little chicken house and they have a little roosting area and they have vents into the greenhouse uh, the chickens also of course produce co2 which contrary to what we were led to believe by the green movement is really good for plants and uh, the plants like it so the chickens are producing excess co2 into the greenhouse through the respiration so those are a few ideas but i think the best thing you could do long term for an absolute dependable get you through your cold nights uh option would be uh, a stove and again what you would want to do is take your your plants that are most uh, in need of warmth closest to your, your your stove, and things like lettuce and spinaches and kales can go way out away from there. So there's some planning involved in that as well. Best suggestion I can give you, let's take another call.
4: Hey, Jack, I just watched your uh, video on the Gerber EAB um, EDC knife. Anyways, I just had a question for you of what you thought about a box cutter as a EDC knife. Um, the only real downfall I see with it is the uh, shortness of the blade. But uh, anyways, just wanted to hear your thoughts about the show. Thanks. Bye.
2: Well, let's, uh, let's first talk a little bit about what the EAB is, why I have the video on it. I'll put a link in today's show notes for you. But the EAB is basically a little razor knife, and it uses a standard like box cutter type blade, that type of thing and um but it folds and it folds about the size of a money clip it's very well made again you watched the video on it it is not my everyday carry knife it is one of my everyday carry tools and those are entirely different things what does that mean that means that i'm always carrying some sort of a full-size knife on me with a folder i've carried the spartan for a while from cold steel i'm really not a fan of that knife i did a review on it you can look at it if you want to know why um I'm carrying a Colt Steel Lawman a lot lately. I bought one for my brother-in-law as a birthday present, and I went ahead and got two of them. I like it a lot better for an EDC knife. Um, I carry a Buck 110 folder uh, on my belt at times. I like that as an EDC knife. Um, if I'm somewhere where it's not going to be a problem, I like the K bar, especially the smaller size K bar. Looks just like the USMC issued K bar, except it is a little bit of a reduced size version. I find it a little more practical for anything other than really out in the bush or what have you. So, I'm either going to carry a full size folder or a fixed blade. Uh, Buck Personal is another knife that I own and I really like. It's a small fixed blade, uh, but it's, it's a really a bulletproof knife. I've carried one since I was a little kid, archery hunting. And I've got a lot of deer with the buck, personal. And it's every bit of what you need uh, in a wilderness. not quite a big enough blade for chopping and things like that. But for the things you're mostly going to do with a knife, it's good. The reason I carry an EAB is I was looking for a razor tool that when I had to cut open a box with a bunch of sticky gross tape on it or something like that, I wasn't using my EDC knife for that. I wasn't dulling it. I wasn't getting crap on the blade. And then if I ever really needed to pen on that knife, I know it's always going to be sharp because I would have to sharpen it less frequently. I keep the, the edge good on it. And all the crap work that I can do that's not heavy work can be done with that razor. Box cutter. When I think of box cutter, you may need something totally different. I think of a little thin metal tool with a base on it, and I push that up, and the razor blade comes out the end. My problem with that is it seems like it has the potential to end up opening in your pocket and cutting you, or wherever you're carrying it. That's why I like the folding tool because it's safe to carry. Um, so the EAB is what I would. It's, it, they're 11 bucks. I can't see that you're going to save much by buying a full-size box cutter or something like that. Now, if you're talking about, I've seen these knives, and I don't think it's what you mean. That basically, it's like a long razor blade, and, and they have little serrations, not serrations, but um, little um, whatever, perforations, whatever you call it, like a check where you tear it out of the checkbook. Uh, they have those in them, and um, once the part of the blade is dull, you break that off. I keep some of the, I don't know what you call those, but they're like a, like I said, a long, thin razor blade, like an X-Acto knife sort of, but but it's like a lead pencil, you know. It wore out, so you break it off, and then you got the next piece of the blade up. I keep those in little kits and all, because I think they're great for skinning and intricate work and things like that. But a standard box cutter razor knife, I think, is too big for EDC. And I don't think that you should rely on any razor blade tool as your EDC knife. I think it's an adjunctive EDC tool, if that makes sense. Um, the EAB, though, uh, I'll try to post again the link to the review I did it in the show notes today. Um, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, clip to the inside of your pocket, it's always there. If you carry some cash on you, and you should, you use it as a money clip. You can pull it out anywhere. Nobody's even going to see it as a knife. And yet, anytime you need to do something like cut banding, You know, I've had to cut banding off of stuff plenty of times. And it just kills me, especially, you know, tough, hard banding to cut that off with, you know, my good EDC knife. I know I might need to do that at some point, and and I'm glad it's there and available. But if I can lessen the the crap work strain on my EDC blade and put it onto a folder, that's what I'm going to do. As far as EDC knives, I really like small frame... Folders Again, the Cold Steel Lawman is what I'm carrying now. i love it compared to the uh, Spartan, absolutely. Um, Gerber makes some good knives that, that, that you can use for stuff like that. Uh, Buck makes some decent ones as well. There's a lot of knives out there. Everybody's knife is better than the next guy's knife. Buy the knife that has the blade profile, the size, and the carryability that you most want, and you're probably going to be happy. And understand, if it's made with really low-quality steel, it's a cheap piece of crap knife. But there's even places for those. At least they're easy to sharpen. I mean, you know, um, it's hard to do better for you know your basic stuff you're going to do in the bush than a twenty dollar mora that you hang around your neck. You know, sweetest steel, carbon. Yeah, it'll rust if you don't keep it dry. But you know, you get a stone or a small steel, and you can sharpen those things so easily. They're tough as nails. They work forever. And if one wears out, you throw it away and buy another one. Twenty bucks. So there's there, there's a lot of options out there. Just understand, when I talk about using any kind of a razor tool for EDC, it's something I add to my EDC. It's something I'm very happy that I've added to my EDC, and, and but it's not going to take the place of a main knife. And for those that are maybe new to the term, EDC is everyday carry. That which is on your body at all times. If I come up to you and you say, well, I carry this as my EDC, and I say, where is it? And you say it's at home, it's not your EDC. It's in my bag in my car. It's not your EDC. It's that which just on your body. You know, if you are a concealed carry holder, it's your gun and your extra mag. Right? It's your it's it's your your main knife. It's the paracord bracelet that's always on your arm. Those are EDC tools. Alright, let's go ahead and take another one.
4: Hey Jack, my name's Chris. Calling from Pennsylvania, Chester County. Um, listen, I as you well know our uh your season starts this last Monday. I think it was the 28th. And uh, I took a nice uh, eight-point po- eight buck off of state game lands outside of Reading. And um, I was I was thrilled to death. It was my first deer. I've been hunting since I was 13, and, and this is the first time I've ever been able to take one. And uh took it with a lever-action 30-30. I'm thrilled to death. But I have a question for you regarding the high. On the back of the deer, I found there was uh, a, p- a large patch. almost looked like... Um, like a saddle was on it, um, on the center of the back on the top. The hair was all worn away, not down to the skin, but down to that that layer, that first layer of hair, or the thickest layer of hair. And I, I don't know what it was. Some people were saying mange. Uh, the guy at the processing place said it could have been hit by a car or something. Uh, somebody else was saying it was from fighting. But I don't know if you had any input on that, if you do.
2: First, it's cool to hear someone that's been hunting in mild stomping grounds up there in central PA um and congratulations on an eight-pointer up there on public land for a lot of folks down here in texas and things like that and hunt these big ranches and all an eight-point buck is yeah it's an average deer um public hunting in pennsylvania an eight-point buck is a damn respectable deer uh and for a first deer and for sticking with it you know from the time you're a kid till now to make sure that you, you eventually did what you needed to do to get a deer congratulations on that and uh seriously uh good job on the patch of hair, there's no way to know specifically, but here's my instinct. This deer had some sort of um, infestation of uh, like uh, ticks or uh, fleas or some sort of dermatitis. And what you're looking at is not it all, probably looks like somebody sh- you know cut the hair halfway down, but you're probably not looking at that. You're probably looking at a patch on this animal's hide. That sometime in the past was completely bare. And instead of seeing underlying hair, what you're seeing is regrowth. And odds are that in, you know, September being really warm or what have you, this deer had some kind of thing that would be akin to what we call a hot spot on a dog. It probably wasn't mange because it's really hard for them to get rid of mange uh, once they're infected with it. It's probably more like you have your, 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 your dog and he's outside, it's hot in August and he starts chewing his tail or something, and he ends up with a spot. It's completely bare. It cools off. Whatever was irritating him goes away, and the hair starts to regrow, and he's got that small, fine hair. And that's that's 90%, I would be sure, what happened. Fighting, it's probably not, although one deer may bite the other and pull some hair out. To have kind of a, a kind of large spot like that uh, would take repeated uh, activity, which is more likely the deer itself chewing at, pulling at, gnawing at this source of irritation. Uh, It's not something one deer is going to generally let another deer do to him. Uh, I've seen fighting wounds. They're generally more like raked wounds. They look more like um, a knife slash where the blade didn't get but in maybe an eighth of an inch. I've seen puncture wounds in deer that have healed from from antlers of other animals. I've seen things that look like there were maybe hoof uh, damage from hoof fights. I've seen does beat the hell out of each other, guys, by the way. Uh, rear up on their hind legs and and hoof fight. Uh, So it happens with all animals. So there are wounds like that that heal over. I've seen a deer. I'm convinced my uncle was the one that shot it the first time, um, where the bullet, because we had this deer we tracked for like eight miles in the snow and never found, and then a year later, a friend shot one and said, man, you got to come see this hide. Uh, The bullet had hit the brisket right at the point where that big bone is down on the chest and just hit at a weird angle and turned sideways and raked the side of the animal and when, we, when he when he shot the deer, he didn't even notice it, but when he skinned it, you could see on the inside a, a scar that went all the way down uh, from the withers all the way back to, to basically right where the crease in the back leg was across the shoulder. It was weird that a bullet would do that, but it was clearly bullet damage, and, the, and there was chelation of the flesh and the chelation of the skin, but the hair had covered it over. Weird stuff happens. It's probably nothing to worry about, though. Let's take another call.
1: Hi, Jack. Good afternoon. Tom from Naples, Florida. I have a couple different questions. One refers to oxygen absorbers, uh, being that if you open up the package with the oxygen absorbers, I'm told that they go uh, bad quickly because they start sucking oxygen out of the environment. Uh, If I put those back after opening the original packaging, and put them back into a vacuum seal food saver bag uh will that put me back on track and keep the life in the oxygen absorbers uh number 2 what if i open up something like thrive which is a freeze dried food source in number 10 cans and the life span of the product Number one, just by putting the plastic cap on. Number two, what if I put an oxygen absorber under that plastic cap? Or is there some other way I can preserve the length of the food because I don't want to eat it all in one week? Uh, number three is what should we do about medications? Uh, what do you think about you know high blood pressure? Uh, diabetes medication and that type of thing have you addressed that with anybody as to what might be the best way to handle long term medical problems as such thank you very much, like your show I'm out of here
2: Okay, for the O2 absorbers, there's a lot of things you can do. And, yes, you can put them, you get them in their vacuum-sealed bag, and you cut the bag open, you take out what you need. You reseal that bag if it's a good bag, or you put them in your own vacuum-sealed bag if you use proprietary bags with your sealer, and you reseal them, and that, and that works pretty well. You know what's much easier? You get the smallest pickling jar uh, with pickling can lid with the ring and the center cap lid that that will hold all of them. So you might have a big jar if you have a lot of it leftovers, a smaller jar, two smaller jars, whatever you can do to fill it almost completely to the top with your O2 absorbers. Throw your ring and your thing on there. Will it absorb some oxygen? Yes, but you have a 100 of them in there, right? They all absorb a little bit, and then all the oxygen is taken up, and they're gone, and they still work fairly well. They're cheap. Instead of having all kinds of anxiety over them and and, and, and all kinds of stress and using your vacuum sealer over and over again and using up all these bags and spending more money than the damn things cost just to protect them, Throw them in a pickling jar. If you're worried that there's not enough oxygen absorption left capability in them, when you're going to put 100 grams or 100 cc product in there, put two of them in there. Again, they're so cheap, it's the easy way to, to make your life stress-free. Understanding how an O2 absorber works. Basically, an O2 absorber is a little uh, hand warmer. That's what they are. There, there's there's iron in there, and there's chemicals in there with the iron that make the iron, when exposed to oxygen, rust faster than it normally would. And when it rusts fast, it generates heat. And that's all it is. It's a little packet of iron oxide and some chemicals that make the, or iron, and and some packet of chemicals that help the iron oxidize faster. When iron rusts, it's oxidizing the iron. What does that mean? It means it pulls the oxygen out of the air and creates iron oxide. And then the oxygen is inert and held in the iron oxide. So get this, if you wanted to real cheap, put a big giant O2 absorber in a 5 gallon bucket and you went out and bought some of those hand warmers that they sell at like Walmart those little packet hand warmers and you threw one or two of those in there it's a giant O2 absorber isn't that cool and they're the exact same stuff inside them are they rated as a food rated no because it costs money to do that and that's not what they're selling them for but the insides are exactly the same Uh, so that's what I would recommend for your O2 absorbers it's just going to be less stress and less problem stuff them as tightly as you can into a jar, put the lid on them, and and that's it. And if you get down to where there's only a few left, throw them the hell out and buy some new ones. Again, they're so damn cheap. To me, it's not worth... I'm not going to vacuum seal five leftover O2 absorbers. Whatever I've just put away, I'm going to throw an extra one in five of them. Right? And just throw some extra insurance in there because they come out to like two cents a piece. As far as the number 10 can that you've opened, just putting the lid back on it, whatever the can says. Because if if it's Thrive Brownie Mix... Or thrive uh, freeze dried pork chops. Those numbers are going to be different. Putting the O2 absorber in there with the with the with the plastic cap, it can't hurt, but it probably won't help that much because that plastic cap is probably not airtight. That's why I suggested using something like a pickling jar for your extra O2 absorbers. Once you seal that lid on there, it's it's airtight. When you have uh, O2 absorbers sealed in a jar like that, and you open it up to take some out. When you pull that thing off, it's going to sound like it was pickled. But it's going to. Psh- because they've pulled that air in. Again, has it reduced the ability of an individual uh, O2 absorber to take up oxygen? Yes, but if there's a hundred of them in there, they've all taken a little bit, which means they all retain most of their ability. It's not like they're surgically sealed in the first place where they've never taken up an ounce of oxygen. right? Every time they're exposed to the air, the process begins. And as much of the iron oxide that's in there that can... Based on the oxygen available, well, Russ, as soon as the oxygen's not available anymore, they stop. The best thing you can do if you really want to extend the life of your freeze dried items with a number 10 can, you've opened it up and you don't want to use it all right now. If you have the option, it would be to put it separately, put it into a vacuum sealed bag with O2 absorbers, uh, and then keep it in a light deprived environment. Even if you take, like, let's say use half of it, it may be possible to vacuum seal it and then stick the vacuum-sealed stuff back in the can and put the lid on and use the can for storage. Um, but the plastic lid is just, if you put enough O2 observers in there to absorb everything, it's probably going to actually create a vacuum, and that's probably going to suck air in through the sides. The plastic lid just isn't a vacuum-tight seal. All right, let's take another one.
0: Hi, Jack. This is Dale from Pennsylvania. Um, I was just listening to your episode 559 a um, listener asked about suggestions for livestock for his butt out location. Um, and one suggestion that I thought of, actually a couple, were uh, geese or guinea fowl. Now, guinea fowl especially, because they're excellent at surviving on their own. And, you know, they'll forage for themselves. And as a side benefit, they're also, if you have enough of them for your property, they'll clear your property of ticks. So, they're something that I believe you could pretty much just let there to take care of them for themselves as long as you could keep them from wandering off so you, you know, you'd have to feed them a little bit or something to get them established there and get them used to the idea that this is their territory but beyond that as far as I know you could just let them go and they'd be able to fend for themselves the other thing is uh, geese are also very good at fending off predators as far as surviving on their own uh, I'm not as familiar with geese so you might have to comment on that but anyway just a couple of suggestions thanks a lot
2: Bye. I have to say, with my experience with guinea fowl, the caller's right. And it's just to refresh people. a guy called in and basically said, I got a bug out location a few hours away. I'm looking to maybe try to put some sort of uh, stock up there that doesn't need anybody to take care of it often. That can really pretty just kind of be there, take care of itself, be on its own. And i have said a lot of stuff, like, you know, obviously cattle and all, you don't have enough land. Uh, and uh, I'd said something to the effect that somebody will got on me about it. Of, you know, if you, if you had an acre per cow, uh, that wouldn't be enough unless you were there. And people took that to mean like, if you had five acres, you'd throw five cattle on there and they could just run free. And, 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 that's not what I was saying. I was saying that you can't do it. And that was the whole point that you would need, you know, huge acreage to leave even a small, uh, a, a head, of, a herd of cattle on there, uh, to be, you know, kind of autonomous and independent. I do think that we're on something here with the fowl. And here's some, some different things that I thought. Of. The geese, I'm not really familiar with raising domestic geese. I do know um, people that, uh, we were friends with in the family that had about a one acre lake and, uh, had basically bought some, you want to call them anything other than this, domesticated Canadian geese. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is these geese were, um, raised from chicks up, but they were Canada geese and they would go out and fly and they'd come back to that pond and it, he had a feeder out there for them, and. They never went south for the winter, man. They stuck around, and he had uh, he had uh, something rigged up to keep some of the water available to them year round, even when the lake froze over. And them damn things were there all the time. And we'd see them flying around like a like a wild flock. And you would be like, "Is that?" And the guy was named uh, uh, Trappy. I'd be like, "Is that Trappy's geese or are those wild geese?" And you see him start circling. Oh, they're his geese. So, with like a wild goose, that that could be done, I guess, but I can't guarantee you they're going to stay put. One of the things I thought of since then, though, and they're not the best-eaten thing in the world, but they do produce eggs and they are edible, would be muscovy, muscovy ducks. Um, every little city park in the world, it seems, has a little flock of muscovy ducks running around, reproducing, little chicks running all over the place. And if you want to, if you have a pond and you want to keep your chicks in balance so you don't get an overpopulation... If that pond's got some big turtles in it, they're going to eat the chicks. And uh, they won't get every chick, but they'll get a lot of them. Uh, we've got one pond here that's so full of those red-eared slider turtles that I don't think any chicks ever make it. I think they get them all. And I've I've been there, and I feel bad for little kids. You know, they're feeding the ducks, and there's a little peeps peeping around, all of a sudden you hear bloop, and one of them's just gone. Um, but that is nature, and that would be one way to keep some level of control, other than I don't like those turtles in a pond. Uh, they really overpopulate. Uh, but you could go, you know, there's a lot of things that would, would take care of some predation on um, Muscovy ducks. But I think if you put in uh, a feeder, like a, like a deer feeder, with uh, feed for them, uh, you could go there once a month, and, and if you're throwing some feed in between what they forage for themselves, they would probably do very well. And there's probably other ducks and geese that would do well. If you really wanted to create a sanctuary from predators, if you built a pond with an island... Uh, That would control a lot, you know. That would give them a place to to roost up at night, where they're kind of, you know, will raccoons swim? Yeah, but they're less likely to, and and other things like that, uh, where they're going to be given afforded some protection uh, from predators. So there's there's some things that can be done. Again, guineas, guineas are uh, most farmers keep guineas to help protect the chickens because if they see a hawk, they scream, they attack everything. They're they're uh, really alert. Uh, they 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 don't like strangers. They let a farmer know when a stranger's walking down the road. Um, so guineas would probably be just fine. But whether they leave or not, I don't know. But again, the way you keep an animal stationary is to feed it. And one of the things I just didn't think about last time, which is kind of dumb that I didn't, is you get a great big deer feeder. You put any kind of feed in there you want to that's small enough to, to be reliable through that feeder. You put a solar panel and a battery on it, you can easily do a month in between visits and feed and provide some supplemental feed to smaller livestock. So those are just some other ideas that I had with that, and thanks for the call. With that, we're going to wrap today up. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today with with all you guys uh, helping out with your calls, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.